Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. She is Stephanie McNeil. You are watching AM to DM, where everyone is, we're, we're all sick. I got a cough drop in my mouth. Yeah, we are all struggling, <laughs> struggling so yeah. hard right now. It's <coughs> so hard to get up early. I feel like I haven't had a full-blown illness, but I've had a lingering cold yes. for about two weeks. Yes. Which I'm gonna blame on Isaac. He's not here, but he was sick a few weeks ago and they swore they sanitized this desk. I think it was him. And you start spraying each other for all night. I feel like the weather in New York, it's like 50 degrees today, pretty cold suddenly. The weather keeps going up and down and just when I feel like my lungs are clearing, I'm like, Congested again. And then people come into the office sick. It's not good. But it's it's hard. It's hard to take a day off when you're in the news and everything's always happening all the time. It's true. Well, Saeed, you had a tweet a lot of people could relate to. You said, you ever do that thing where you take your cold medicine and then look up moments later and can't remember if you've taken your cold medicine, but now you're afraid to take more and accidentally overdose? Just me. Cool. The struggle is real, y'all. And Sylvia replied, in more recent years, this ends with me just taking more and thinking, if I die, I die, which is a mood for I, I just, I just totally had this moment yesterday. And it occurred to me, it's like, as someone who's on my phone all the time, it's just like, you know, you, you're on Twitter, you close Twitter, and you kind of like blink, and you realize you're on Twitter again. That's totally what it feels like taking cold medicine. I'm like, did I do it? I don't, where's the wrapper? You know, has or that happened I, to you? when I like go to, I go to feel for my phone in my pocket, and I realize I'm texting It's in your hand, hand, and it's like, <laughs> what happens to our brains in that 10 seconds? Someone mentioned like when they were in high school having to take ADD medication, and they were like, I would always forget, and that's kind of a cruel joke on someone who has ADD. I Honestly, I've done sometimes when I keep, this keeps happening to me where I can't remember if I've taken medicine, I like stick out my tongue in the mirror and see it in my brain and then I'm like, ah, okay, I took it. That's smart. Yeah, I, uh, I don't smart. know. But you can always get one of those little old school old people like vitamin holders. Might need to. Yeah. If, if us being sick is just normal life now. That's might have the to stage of life we're at. We're gonna need that's that. That's why, that's why the old people got them. They're necessary. I love it. AM2 Tylenol PM, which is not a sponsor. <laughs> no, yet. it could be with the rate we're going. Don't get fresh. <laughs> Anyway, well, Twitter, we want to hear from you. Are you liking this cold weather, or are you, like us, kind of falling apart a little bit with illness? Uh, tweet us using the hashtag AM2. <coughs> that was Sorry. Funny. Great acting. I loved it. That was so good. Emmys, look out. <laughs> well, the midterm elections are still a few weeks away, but it's all everyone's talking about, especially in Georgia. People in Georgia are already voting in the state's big governor's race. We've talked about this race so much on the show. Here's a tweet from AJC reporter Ben Brash. The line is massive for early voting in Cobb County. People are parking along curbs. One man told me he got out of line after 30 minutes and got an absentee ballot because he said it looked like it'd be another two hours in line if he had it. Two hours in line to wow. vote. Wow, and I mean, crazy. look at those, those pictures. I know, from ben. that's dedication wow. right there. And there have been more claims of voter suppression. Here's a tweet from AJ Plus. Georgia County officials ordered 40 African-American senior citizens off a bus that was taking them to vote. They said the nonpartisan group that organized it, Black Voters Matter, broke rules about political activity. The group calls it voter suppression. Well, Kira Lerner from Think Progress has been traveling with Black Voters Matter for the last few days uh, and happened to witness that incident with the senior citizens herself. She joins us now. Thank you for having me. Of course, Kira, thank you for joining us. So let's talk about that incident. Uh, what did you see on the bus that day? Sure, well, I've been traveling for, with Black Lives Voters Matter for two days at that point. We were down in rural Georgia, a few hours south of Atlanta. Uh, the first event of the day was at a senior center in a small town called Louisville. Um, so we walked into the senior center. The co-founders of Black Voters Matter, Cliff and Latasha, were singing and joyous. There were 40 or 50 senior citizens gathered in a room to listen to this presentation about the importance of voting. Everyone was fired up. Um, Black Voters Matter walked the crowd out into the street in front of the senior center and their bus, which is emblazoned with photos of black fists and African-Americans was outside. The seniors were excited. They were dancing to James Brown. I'm black and I'm proud. They were all fired up to go get on the bus and vote. Uh, but once they boarded the bus and were ready to go, uh, Cliff and Latasha, Black Voters Matter, notified them that county officials had actually called and said that they were not permitted to take them to cast a ballot that day. Wow. What reason was given by the county? I mean, right. how did the county even know this was happening? It's so bizarre. 
At that point, it was kind of unclear the county's exact reasoning. Black Voters Matter did not want to cause a huge disturbance in the small town. So they listened to the orders and they got the seniors off of the bus. Um, through follow-up reporting and talking to the county administrator, he gave a number of different reasons. One was that he felt uncomfortable with this unknown third party coming into the town unvetted, um, taking their seniors on a ride. Um, but Black Voters Matter pointed out that these are grown adults. They can make their own decisions about what bus they get on or what bus they don't get on. Um, and they asked if they needed permission every time they came to the town, if they always had to be vetted when they visited Louisville. Uh, the county administrator also said that he was uncomfortable having a partisan group at the senior center, but Black Voters Matter is nonpartisan. They don't endorse candidates. Um, they were just there to talk about the importance of voting. Okay, so uh, my, my mind is like racing because, okay, let's talk about the history of voting in this country very briefly. Of course, there's a tradition of activists <laughs> in the 20th century getting on buses mm -hmm. and traveling to states like Georgia or Tennessee, where my family is from, to help African-Americans exercise their right to vote. So I'm, it, it, it makes it even more, not bizarre, like disturbing, you know, in 2018 to hear about this. Um, do we know what happened next? Uh, did the senior citizens get to ultimately vote that day? Well, these are senior citizens, and we know that seniors are very active voters. They are not the people who are not showing up to the polls uh, during midterm elections, typically. So the seniors that I did talk to at that senior center said that they were voting anyway. A few of them, one woman said she got right into her truck after she was forced off the bus and went with a friend to the polls. So no actual votes, voters in the senior center were suppressed. But I think this incident just highlights the scale of voter intimidation that is likely going on across the South. And not all voter suppression comes from visible legislation like voter ID laws and voter purges and these other laws that, that are far more visible. Sometimes it's just this low level of voter intimidation that's likely going on all across the South. Wow. Yeah, Kara, I want to show our viewers a tweet that you sent out of a woman, Bernice Hunley. I think she's the woman you were just referencing who was yeah. pulled off the bus. And there's a great photo of her here. She said she got right in the truck and drove herself and a friend to the polls. So obviously, while it's great that these people, you know, have, you Are know, the, still, yeah, they still have the determination to go and vote. This obviously is very disturbing that this whole thing that was set up to make it easier for them was taken away from them. What about the candidates? Have they spoken out about this at all? Yeah, and just to that point, on the bright side, most of these seniors said they were even more fired up because of this, and they're going to get even more friends and family to go to the polls. Um, so Stacey Abrams, the Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia, uh, held a rally. She called together a last-minute rally um, on Wednesday morning, yesterday morning, in this town in Louisville. And a number of the seniors from the Senior Center did show up. And Stacy spoke about the importance of early voting. And she said, I wanted to be here to show that I stand with the people of Louisville. And obstacles to voting are only a problem if we don't fight those obstacles. Um, as we know, Stacey Abrams has uh, built a lot of her career about, around registering voters, um, fighting voter suppression. So this is nothing new for her. Um, and Brian Kemp, the Republican candidate, has not responded to this incident. All right. Well, Kira, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I have a tweet here from Nichelle about voter suppression, and she said, voter suppression is the scariest thing this Halloween, which yeah, truly definitely true. It's disturbing. just such a crazy story, and it's been an insane election so far. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens the next couple of weeks. Definitely keeping our eyes on that race for sure. Well, earlier this week, Sears filed for bankruptcy after 132 years of operation. That news inspired this thread from Lewis Hyman. Here's how it starts. In my history of consumption class, I teach about Sears, but what most people don't know is just how radical the Sears catalog was in the era of Jim Crow. He continued, the stores were not self-service, so the black customers would have to wait, and then would have to ask the proprietor to give them goods, often on credit because sharecropping. The landlord often owned the store in every way, shopping reinforced hierarchy. That is, until the Sears catalog came along. This is so interesting. Well, Lewis Hyman, a history professor at Cornell University, joins us now. Good morning. 
Good morning. How are you? We're doing great, and we're just so excited to get to talk to you about it because we're we learned so much from your thread. So let's start where that tweet that Stephanie just read uh, left off. Um, from the perspective of of Black customers at this point in American history, how did the Sears catalog's introduction change their shopping experience? Well, it was a way out of the strictures of white supremacy. You know, they could actually just buy the stuff they wanted. You know, the clothes, the hats even the guns that they wanted to get or farm equipment um, without having to ask a white shopkeeper for credit or for permission. And this is why the Sears catalog was really radical. Unlike Montgomery Wards, they offered credit. So, you know, farmers, black farm, most people were farmers, black and white, but they could, didn't have to wait for the harvest um, to get whatever they needed. They could just get what they needed as they needed it outside of white control. One of the most shocking things about your thread to me was the response from the shop owners in the towns when they found out what was happening with the Sears catalog. Can you go through that a little bit? Well, I mean, it sounds a lot like what we just talked about in 2018, that there are people in control in local areas that don't want black people to be empowered, right? Uh, whether in their shopping or their voting. And this is exactly the same thing that was the case in 1900. So there were shopkeepers that organized bonfires. They sort of spread uh, rumors that Sears and Roebuck were black to encourage white customers not to shop there and all other kinds of ways to keep control over the, you know, the accounts of black people. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I've seen people, of course, draw parallels to Nike and Colin Kaepernick, even to Pepsi versus Coca-Cola. Um, it's just fascinating. At one point, uh, rumors were started, you say in the thread, that Sears and Roebuck, uh, that Sears himself was black. Uh, and, and I wondered, where did these rumors come from and, and what was their intent? Well, the intent was to dissuade white customers, you know, of Sears, the Sears catalog from shopping there, that you wouldn't want to, you couldn't trust a black person, you couldn't shop from a black person. Um, and, you know, this, you know, Sears actually published pictures to prove uh, that he was white. And it just really reveals how deeply troubling it was to have the, uh, you know, to have black people shop where they wanted to. Mm. That's so disturbing. So you tweeted out all of this history and educated so many of us and so many people responded. Were you surprised by the response to your thread? Uh, yeah, I was totally surprised. I mean, I've never had anything like this happen before. And, you know, I just took some stuff. I saw that Sears was going bankrupt. So I teach the history of Jim Crow in my history of consumption class, because a lot of the history of Jim Crow is not just about voting, but about everyday shopping. And those two things are deeply connected. And I just copied some of my notes. I went to class. I came back, and it started to go viral. And yeah, there it is. It's, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm very delighted that so many people connected with it. Yeah, I wanted to read this tweet to you from Princess Leia. She said, uh, your thread uh, really speaks to one, her historical heart. And B, she says, um, I stand my whole family in oral tradition heart. Uh, I often heard stories of my grandma shopping in the Sears catalog. So it, I just, that's great. Um, but I wonder, I saw you use the hashtag Twitter historian. So do you do this often, kind of engage and, and kind of lecture Twitter in, in, in the best sense of the word? Yeah, a lot of historians try to comment on current events using Twitter historians as a hashtag. And so, you know, we try to put ideas out there, put things in context, make connections. Um, and we just feel like it's kind of our job to do that. Cool. Well, Lewis, thank you yeah. so much for educating all of us. And let us know the next time you're doing, you're teaching us something on Twitter. I love to be educated on Twitter. It's one of the well, best Well, it's, uh, it's a delight to talk with you guys. And, you know, that we I did put up all the history of capitalism, YouTube and podcast links from the class I teach at Cornell using that. And so if people are interested more in the history of race and capitalism, they should check out those videos. It's 153. All right. All awesome. right. We got we a lot of... We've got a lot of homework to do. to do for our class. Thank All right, so sounds much. good. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, and, and here's one last tweet from his thread that I wanted to read. So as we think about Sears, uh, let's think about how retail is not just about buying things, but part of a larger system of power. Every act of power contains the opportunity and the means for resistance. Do we need to go back to school?
I know. No, we don't because wow. we have Twitter. We can just Shut get up. a we can get a Cornell level study of so cool. race and capitalism on Twitter. It's so great. Yeah, and I saw he has a book about like the history of consumption. So gonna get that on my. Reader. And also, I mean, this I didn't know. I had no idea about any of this. Yes. I don't know if you did. No. Um, but I feel kind of bad now that Sears. Died. Sears, we are so sorry. I mean, I guess they're still kind of alive, but yeah. R.I.P. Sears. Sorry. Shout out to y'all. Yeah. All right. When we come back, it's time for fire tweets, and then we're gonna go live from the district. Stay tuned. Fire! Fire! Okay, Twitter is definitely following our brains because I was just flipping through the AMCDM hashtag on Twitter and I got an ad for Outlander. It's coming for us all. I think children. we said that we were going <laughs> to talk about Outlander on the show today. We were, like, we were like, we like did too much, break. too much yesterday. We can't help it. It's it's like, I get in and I can't. It's like I don't even watch the show. I've never tweeted about the show. It's following me. How did it know? How did it know? How did it know? All right. Well, shout out to Outlander. Can I? I mean, wouldn't it be great if they came on the show soon? Oh we're yeah, that'd be on. awesome. We're gonna work. Yeah, on. come That's on, guys. Let's do it. it. That is. I'll our start the show. Maybe I'll start it this weekend. Now. I like it. Yes. Yes. Okay. Fire tweets. You ready? Yes. Let's go. This comes from Sean Delaney. Thought I'd lost the dog there. Uh, turns out I've accidentally put the recliner down on him, and he's been lying inside the couch for an hour, not giving a fuck. That is wow. Scary. Did Sean? Did you even go look for the dog? I'm actually always very, <laughs> especially when we when you first get a pet. You know, mm -hmm. even if you've had pets in the past, there's yeah. just like this nervousness. You're not really yes. sure how they're going to react to your environment. Uh -huh. And I remember being very afraid of that, of like somehow like squishing Buffy like in the our cat. futon or something. Yeah. yeah. But and cats, I feel like are, I do kind of crouch in unexpected. Yeah, I think when we first got her, she somehow crawled into our futon that we had and we were both just like panicking and I was like, she's a cat, she'll come yeah, out, she's true. fine. And she did. They're also squishy and yeah. weird. All right, this, this person has a fire tweet, but also a very oh. interesting name. Okay. It's the Garth Hellfucker Perkett. Sorry, <coughs> sorry, mom. <laughs> Folks, time to pipe up. What was your favorite combo on the multiplication table? Mine was nine times nine equals 81. It always felt really adult, like, we're no longer fucking around here. I love it. So many fuckings. So many fuckings. Nine times Garth nine Hellfucker. equals 81. That's so funny. <laughs> I loved two times seven equals 14, because after I got past the twos, I really struggled with multiplication. That was yeah, it for me. I, I honestly, when I read this tweet, I was like, nine times nine does equal 81. Yeah, I, seems so I didn't make it to the nines, Hellfucker. Didn't do it, didn't do it. Don't get me started on long division. Okay, this next tweet comes from KB. Just finished up a five-day social media hiatus and came to the conclusion that putting down your phone every once in a while and actually spending quality time with your loved ones is astronomically more shitty and annoying than just chilling by yourself and looking at stuff online. Well, wow. I'm on that my you, phone for a reason. Yeah, you said that with a lot of passion. Yeah, I did. I, I don't know where that came I from. I feel like this is anticipating us. Uh, holiday time, holiday season with everyone getting together. Oh gosh. Hearing everyone's political oh, opinions. Gosh. Can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> Vampire style. Every Daft Punk song is either you're in a nightclub in France and your shirt is torn to shreds, dance for your life. <laughs> or you're a robot desperate to learn what love is and come alive. You long for another being's touch, be they flesh or cybernetic. It's raining. That's true. Are the Daft Punk, are they, sp are they supposed to be robots? Oh uh, yeah, I Yeah, guess right? So. I, am the, I was like, dang, their songs really do fall into those two categories. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I really, huh. Yeah. I don't know. Right. It's like it's like some of the songs, too, if you listen to them, they're actually like kind of depressing, but like in a mm. like fun way. Well, you know what? They're French. Uh, that's, that's it. That's that whole tweet. Yep. All right. This tweet of the day uh, comes from Brosen. You ready? Mm -hmm. All right. I remember one time I flew Spirit and there was a medical emergency and the flight attendants asked if there was a doctor aboard and this old man woke up from his nap and said, Ain't no doctor's flying spirit. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a drag. It's so good. I actually just flew spirit oh, like two okay. weeks ago. Are you Chicago. a doctor? I am not a doctor. Right. No. Um, but, you know, spirit gets a bad rap. I understand. It wasn't that bad. Okay. I will never know. It was a two-hour flight, though, so I wouldn't do it for a long haul. All right. Well, well up next, we're going live from the district. Stay tuned. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News' politics reporter, Nitty Prakash. Good morning, Nitty. 
Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Okay, uh, here's a tweet from the Washington Post, Karen Atia. Uh, this was one of the saddest things I have ever done. To edit Jamal Khashoggi's final piece for the Washington Post. We've lost a bright and brave voice. Say your word, then leave. Sleep well, my friend. Uh, what the Arab world needs most is free expression. Um, okay, so Nidhi, um, this is this is heartbreaking because Karen Atiyah, of course, was Jamal Khashoggi's longtime editor, and she explained she was kind of holding back on publishing that piece because she was hoping for good news. Uh, can you talk about this kind of change in circumstance and and what, of course, he wrote in the final piece? Right, absolutely. I mean, I think that what his editor was saying is that she was hoping to be able to edit the piece with him, and this was the last thing he filed to the Washington Post. And uh, basically, they decided to publish it because they have kind of realized that there's not much chance that he's coming back. Um, so, I mean, his piece itself directly addresses, you know, freedom of expression and freedom of the press in the Arab world, and that's kind of part of what makes it even more devastating. Wow. Yeah, here's a tweet from the Washington Post, John Hudson. Q&A with Pompeo after his meeting with Saudi officials. Did they say if Khashoggi is alive or dead? Pompeo, I don't want to talk about any of the facts and they didn't want to either. Okay, Nitty, this is a little confusing. What was the point of Pompeo's meeting with the Saudi officials if no one wanted to talk about the facts? So I think it's really unclear because ostensibly he was there on a fact-finding mission. Uh, so this statement that he made to reporters, it really does raise the question of what he was actually doing there if he wasn't there looking for answers on what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and I, I know Trump and Pompeo uh, met seemingly just 20 minutes ago or, or, or starting meetings, so um, I won't assume we already know what's come out of that, but I, I just... What has the response been to the calculus? I mean, uh, just last night, Trump was was talking about, well, you know, the Saudi government spends a lot of money on, on U.S. weapons. And so I'm just so curious to hear how people are responding to this. I mean, so, yeah, as you say, uh, the president so far has been, you know, really resisting uh, any kind of criticism or condemnation of the Saudi authorities for this whole this whole situation, um, and it has been pointed out by various outlets that also you know that uh, the president has had significant financial interests in Saudi Arabia in the past, and the Trump uh, organization still potentially does today. Um, you know, so he sold the Crowdy Crown Prince a yacht, Crown Prince a yacht back in the 90s, and sold an entire floor of Trump Tower uh, to Saudis as well, and uh, you know even specifically has said that they buy apartments from me, referring to Saudi Arabians. Um, so that obviously, you know, has been something that people have been questioning. So to the point where uh, a group of Democratic senators sent a letter to him yesterday, kind of uh, demanding some clarity on that to really kind of like get him to be more transparent about what exactly, if any, interests he's had with the Saudis in the past. And as part of that letter, they're pretty clear that that should not have any influence on any action that the government takes at this point, um, whether that's sanctions or, or other kinds of action. Mm. There were a lot of reports yesterday that there might be a tape of what happened to Khashoggi. Do we have any more information on that? Has Trump reacted to that? So the tape uh, basically is something that Turkish authorities say that they have, and they've released it to Turkish local media and have confirmed uh, some of those contents to the New York Times as well. They haven't released it more widely. Um, it's unclear exactly whether they're going to, but when he was asked about it, I, I don't think that Pompeo directly addressed it, but then a State Department spokesperson later said that he has not heard the tape. Um, Trump, on the other hand, he said that he would listen to the tape, but at the same time is casting doubt on its existence. Um, so that's kind of where we stand with it right now. And, and Nidhi, just one more question about this. I mean, this is, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Um, it's, it's scary and saddening. And, you know, of course, he wrote for the Washington Post. Karen Atia is, you know, a colleague of yours in Washington, D.C. Um, and so I just wanted to ask you, as a reporter based there um, in the district, what's it been like to watch this unfold? I mean, certainly I think that it's something that hits close to home. Anytime something like this happens to a reporter, um, it's something that we all kind of like pay attention to and expect, you know, a response from our own community as well as our government. Um, and, you know, I think especially being in D.C. right now, it is true that we have a lot of colleagues in common. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit extra. Yeah, it definitely has a bit of an extra impact. 
Yeah, it's definitely something that we all need to be paying attention to in this profession and around the world. So we're definitely going to keep an eye on the story. Thank you so much, Nidhi. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, here's a story from BuzzFeed News reporter Molly Hin Hinsley Clancy we also wanted to talk about. Suburban women are fed up with the Republican Party and could drive a blue wave. Molly joins us now. Hey, guys. Oh, that's oh. Rachel. Where's Molly? Where's I'm Molly? Molly? Molly, where are you? There, there you, you are. are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can yeah, hear you. Yeah, we can hear you. How's it going? <laughs> okay, Molly. Yeah. So now that we have you on the screen with us, why might suburban women be behind this blue wave? Well, it's one word and it's Trump. Uh, they don't like him and they haven't for a long time. But um, what I found when I went out, I talked to more than three dozen of them um, in districts across the country. And what I found was that their dislike of Trump is now kind of seeping over to the Republican Party and it's preventing them from voting for Republicans that they maybe normally would have considered voting for. And it all has to do with Trump. Okay, interesting. Um, you, you spoke to several of these people. Um, where, where are their voting districts and are they going to, you know, are they going to be influential kind of swing districts? Yeah, a lot of the most influential districts, you know, when we're talking about will Democrats take back the House or not, a lot of the districts are in wealthy suburbs outside Philadelphia was one, outside Detroit, outside Minneapolis. They're suburbs where Hillary Clinton won by a small margin, and maybe Republican incumbents hung on there because people kind of expected that they would be more moderate. Um, and they've since sort of seen that the Republican Party has really remade itself in the image of Trump. And what I found was that, you know, really turned off a lot of women voters particularly. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the really important districts are women are places where these women are really could tip the scales, I guess. You mentioned uh, they were supporting moderate Republicans in the past. I'm curious, do you think these voters were Republicans who are changing parties or are these people who kind of towed the line, maybe they were independent, maybe they kind of flip-flopped, and now they're saying definitely we're gonna vote Democrat now. I say it's mostly independents. A lot of the women I talk to, they don't really like identifying with a party. They kind of say, I'm not a party person, um, but this election there is something different, and this election they're voting straight Democrats. Um, but there is also some data that the only real category of Trump voters who are turning away from him, who are starting to dislike him, are white college-educated women. So some of them certainly are Republicans who are, who are you know, fed up with the president, but, but most of them are, are independents. They don't have a loyalty to any party, but this time they say, I'm going to be voting straight Democrat. And Molly, I, I do have to ask, um, did any of the women you spoke to point to specific um, moments or turning points in the last two years with Trump that changed their perception? Because again, these are women who voted for Trump after, for example, the Access Hollywood tape uh, came out in October of 2016. You know, I, I didn't talk to a lot of women who had themselves voted for Trump. Um, a lot of them had, a lot of the people I talked to had voted for Hillary Clinton, and then they also voted for their Republican congressman. Um, and so for them, the turning point in, in terms of deciding that they weren't going to vote for their Republican congressman again was a, a lot of them, some of them talked about, um, you know, basically just after the election, watching their congressman vote for the repeal of the ACA is one example, watching them vote for the tax bill, watching them vote for Trump with Trump over and over again when they had kind of expected that their congressman might, you know, vote against him, might stand up against him. So for them, it was really like they, you know, they, they haven't liked Trump all along. It's not that they're turning away from him. It's that they're turning away from sort of the party um, that they had previously maybe thought wasn't as closely aligned with Trump as they ended up being. Wow. Yeah. So they thought that their representative would maybe like push would back. push back and they were disappointed to see that the representative did not. Okay, so we have to talk exactly, about yeah. Fox and Friends. They <laughs> ran a segment yesterday <laughs> countering your piece, let's say. It seems Trump himself may have even weighed in. What was that like? Do you have any response to the criticism? Well, uh, it was it was Tommy Laren who talked about it and she basically said 
the polls are wrong. Um, you know, there's a lot of data kind of backing up what I found with my story that, you know, women are, they are backing Democrats in, in key House districts by almost 30 points. And what, what Tommy Lahren said was that's wrong. Um, once women get into the ballot box, they say they're going to vote for a Democrat, they're going to vote for a Republican. Um, and, you know, maybe that's true. We, we, we won't know. Um, but we do know that, that white college-educated women didn't back Trump. White women did. Um, but once you get into sort of the suburbs, into white college-educated women, they, they went for Hillary by a, a small margin. Um, so there's some evidence that they're, they may not vote Republican, but we're not going to know um, until after Election Day. Yeah, and that was a huge talking point on the right, both before and after 2016, too, was that there were all these secret Trump voters who mm -hmm. were afraid to outwardly right. express that they supported Trump, but then once they got into the ballot box, actually did vote for Trump. So, I mean, we don't know. Maybe We will maybe, soon, yeah, though, I guess. We will soon know. We'll see. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Molly, for coming on and talking to us about this. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay, up next, I'll speak to Rachel, who you just saw, about mixed-race Instagram babies. It's a really interesting piece. Stay tuned. Hmm. BuzzFeed News reporter Rachel Krishna tweeted, I spoke to the mums of the mixed-race babies with hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram. They told me about what it's like being a parent on Instagram and navigating the complexities of mixed-race identity on social media. Rachel's story was so good. It came out yesterday, and I am so excited, Rachel, to talk to you now. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So this is something that I've seen on Instagram a lot, and we've talked about a little bit in our Slack channel. But how did you first discover that mixed-race children were so popular on Instagram? Um, I kind of discovered the big collection pages when I was working on a couple other stories about photos being stolen. Um, and there was a couple kind of pages that don't really exist anymore. This was like about a year ago um, that were taking the photos of the children and kind of using them in this kind of fetishizing way and their families as well being like, oh, look at this, this couple together. Um, aren't they so amazing overcoming the racial barriers to have these children together? Um, and then I started digging into a bit more and started like contacting the families behind these photos to kind of talk to them. Um, and that's how I ended up talking to Euphoria, who's kind of the subject of the piece. So obviously children on Instagram and children fan accounts are nothing new. We've covered them here at BuzzFeed News. But why do you think so many people specifically kind of fangirl or like you said, fetishize mixed race babies and toddlers in particular? Um, in the piece, I spoke to two academics about this because it's a really kind of like interesting but difficult issue at the same time. Um, one of the academics made the point that like you could look at it on the positive side and see it as people being like, oh, wow, um, you know, this kind of like look at a future where races all get on and they all intermingle. They all have children together and these babies are kind of like a symbol of hope. Um, but then there's a kind of like less positive way of looking at it in which um, uh, people mainly focus on mixed race children who have uh, whiteness in them and see the whiteness as a way of uh, making ethnicity more approachable, more acceptable towards them. Um, uh, from a lot of the comments that I see on these pages, I think that the majority of people kind of feel the uh, feel the former and feel like it's kind of like, oh, there's these wonderful children. Um, a lot of people uh, haven't really seen mixed-race kids before as well. We think of it as quite common, but actually, especially in the UK, it's still quite a low percentage. And so it's kind of like this new, almost future thing for them. That's so interesting. So you spoke to one mom in particular. Her name's Cheryl Ann Stamp. She's the mother of an 18-month-old mixed-race girl who has over 100,000 followers on Instagram. So what drove her to make her daughter Euphoria part of this online community? Um, so we have in the piece that even on the day Euphoria was born, she had nurses telling her mother, telling Cheryl how beautiful she was. And Euphoria is a really pretty kid, if you look at the photos in the piece. Um, and her mum kept having all these people approach her in public, tell her that Euphoria should get into modeling. Um, and the kind of 2018 approach to that is, well, what about Instagram account? I mean, Instagram influencers do it. Adults do it all the time where they just post pictures themselves and become big enough because they are so attractive that they get deals, money, holidays. And for Cheryl, I mean, she doesn't have a job right now. She decides to quit her job. 
um, when she had euphoria to like spend more time with her. So really euphoria and this account has been her whole focus for the last 18 months. It's so fascinating, these online communities around these children. But one of the things that affects mixed race Instagram accounts specifically that you talked about a little bit in your piece is there's these accounts that steal the photo and then edit the photo to make them look for example, in one photo, Euphoria has her natural brown eyes, and the other one, she's edited to have blue eyes. And the accounts make people or ask followers to comment if they like one photo better or the other photo better. Obviously, this is problematic. Can you talk about this a little bit? And what does Euphoria's mom think about this? Yeah, so kind of what's going on here is um, these are the kind of idea that mixed raceness combines all these different qualities. These people take... Um, the pictures of these kids and they go, well, why don't we, you know, add more qualities, do different things, lighten their skin, lighten their hair, lighten their eye color. And so the people do, to the accounts doing this, they don't see anything wrong with it. But as Cheryl said in the interview, a lot of people feel, um, especially if you're taking a kid who has like brown eyes, which are more typically associated with people of um, ethnic backgrounds, um, giving them green or blue eyes, which are more typically um, like, aligned with Caucasian looks is kind of aligning their race more towards the white side of things, which, as we said, is very kind of problematic and has issues in itself. Yeah, it's so interesting. We can't even really scratch the surface of it here. So I would encourage everyone to read your piece. It's so good. We're going to tweet it out right now. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us all the way from London. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, Saeed sits down with actors Adam Polly and Stephanie March. So exciting. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm sitting down with Adam Pally and Stephanie March, who are both part of a President Show documentary, The Fall of Donald Trump. Wow. Okay, what do you know that, that I don't know, y'all? Uh, I'm not at liberty to say. <laughs> uh, we, all, we, we signed NDAs, um, okay. so we Good. can't, State with the State okay. Department, we can't tell you. They, they love NDAs, I've heard that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, okay, so you're playing Ivanka Trump yes. and Donald Trump Jr. Yes. Uh, so what about uh, this iteration of The President Show will, will be different? Well, um, I think uh, in former pre President shows, we, we were kind of a live talk show mm -hmm. that was um, on a stage mm -hmm. and, and uh, kind of mocking, um, uh, you know, um, late night television. Okay. And I think this time we're, we're, we try to do a deep dive into uh, what potentially the next 12 years could look like and uh, do kind of our own version of a documentary on how that would be presented. 12 years, that's... 12 years, yeah. Ooh, that's a long okay. time. That's a long time, friend. That's a long time. And, and, and how ambitious to assume we're all just gonna be here in 12 years. Um, <laughs> Stephanie. <That's> <laughs> and on that note. So on yeah. that note, we're good. Stephanie. <laughs> no, you know, you're, you're playing Ivanka, yes. and then this will be her first time, you know, appearing on a president show. Yes. Pretty I, I, cool. It was, it was a delightful thing to participate in. Yeah. It's always fun to play somebody younger. <laughs> Although she's in the future, so I guess that's not technically true. Maybe that's why I was cast. What, what was, I mean, th it's so interesting. I mean, a as an actor kind of getting into, of course, there's the hair and then, you know, the... Da you know. Day of shooting, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> Day of shooting, I thought it was. Did I look like Ivanka or did I look like. I, you know, I can't watch myself. So I, I saw a clip I of it and I was walked like, in. Nope. You just avoid it? You I, just, I, I, saw, I watched Adam. I watched, I watched Anthony. I watched everybody. They were great, by the way. You're terrific. Oh. I know. Kathy's great. <laughs> Kathy's amazing. Kathy is amazing. She's a mess. It's fantastic. Kathy, Kathy is amazing. I feel like Kathy doesn't get enough uh, credit. She's Kellyanne, right? She plays she, Kellyanne. Kathy is an amazing actress as well. She's an unbelievable stand-up um, and brave and all that amazing thing. She's on thing. point. Like, she's she's an amazing to... actress. I love that. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited to see this new version. Mm -hmm. um, I, one thing I, w I was talking with um, a friend about was like, how do you approach the challenge of pretending to be Ivanka or, or Donald Trump Jr. or, or the president um, and make them funny. Um, but you know, sometimes there's criticism that making someone funny is kind of like humanizing them, maybe making them sympathetic. I would say that there, um, there's two versions of that and I don't think that our version um, is quite sympathetic. I think that um, humor uh, is one of the last kind of things we have left to uh, point to the truth of a situation. Mm -hmm. um, and even that is starting to teeter. Uh, uh, so I think that it's important to 
um, always be able to criticize through a joke, whether it be a, a comic book uh, still or a, a stand-up set or a sketch. It's like that's that's one of our only ways to reflect the way um, society is making us feel. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you have to do that. And once you stop doing that, then you really do lose um, sort of uh, perspective on the situation. Yeah. I would also say that if you are going to take on the highest office in the land, you must expect that you will be, you know, a part of the culture, be that in comes humor. With the yeah, yeah. I think I think it comes with the territory. I think to a much lesser degree, it comes with the territory of being, you know, a performer anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, but I also that's that's part of the deal. Mm -hmm. Since you know, since uh, taping and you know, doing the costumes and everything like that, do you? when paying attention to them in the real world? Because, uh, of course, they're still very much public figures. Like, have you been, like, paying attention to Ivanka, or...? Well, you know, I, I, so I did kind of a deep dive when, uh, when I was doing the job, and it, was, okay. and it was really fun, and I enjoyed it, and I, and I loved working with these guys so much. But I will tell you, just in general, I'm on a little bit of a news blackout because it's starting mm -hmm. to just... It, it's not educating me anymore. It's just okay. making me anxious. Mm -hmm. So my feeling is uh, I'm going to... I'll read the paper on the weekends, and I'm going to vote. Yeah, that I've, I've said true. that. I felt like sometimes you get to the point where you're not actually being rewarded right. for learning more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I don't feel like I'm taking on more knowledge. I feel like I'm taking on more stress. Mm. Yes, of course. And Ooh. social media is like a real, I'm having a real hard time like figuring out how to careful. deal with social media and yeah. the news and stuff like that's kind of inundating. But Are, are you doing something similar to Stephanie? Uh, I'm not doing a, a news blackout because I also feel this responsibility um, to write. Well, yeah, you're right. To write to that, to write to it. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm definitely trying to figure out how to manage it uh, because, I, especially over the last, I think, like six six months to a year, I've been kind of really stressed out by mm -hmm. my phone and the news, and it's hard. And it's a constant. I mean, you know, you know this. Yeah. It's Twitter. It's constant. Yeah. But um, you know, I recommend cats. Cat stories. Yeah. Animals, animals <laughs> I was are like, really good. The yeah. musical? Okay. <laughs> sure. I mean, you could take that anyway. Oh, yeah. You could do a, you could do a, a, a good exploration of animal yeah. pet yeah. kind of Instagram things. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, something so interesting in both of your careers, did you always, were you always so into politics in terms of, of your work? Um, and did you always, you know, anticipate that at some point you wanted to like head on, take on the headlines, take on the Oval Office? <laughs> I, you know, I, it's only that you're saying that that I realized that I have had a lot of political jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so the answer is no, it was not intentional. Uh -huh. um, no, I don't think it was intentional, but I think I realized uh, after Happy Endings. Uh, shout out to Happy Endings. Shout out to Happy Endings. Oh, no. We were both oh, this like, part of the Happy Endings family. Um, too soon. Yeah, uh, very too soon. Um, uh, I realized after Happy Endings the uh, responsibility and like weight that comes with mm -hmm. being uh, in this business, mm -hmm. and so and so especially when things started to turn, I felt a real a real need to kind of uh, you know have a call to arms, and and that was to turn. Um, the comedy that I would usually do into a reflection of, again, the way I felt towards what was going on in the world. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad you're both doing it. Uh, need it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting a look at my jacket. Um, I see jacket you totally. Are you checking out your jacket? I am. I was telling her when I came in, I, I, I feel like I look like I got out of the sidecar of a motorcycle in the 30s. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I know you like kicks. So I, I do like kicks. I like wearing yes. like the, the coolest kicks I could. Those are very so, cool. Those are, those are very cool. Like, it worked. Know, they worked. show up with my Allbirds today as well. Adam, Stephanie, thank you both so much. And thank again, you for having um, us again. A President Show documentary, The Fall of Donald Trump, airs Monday, October 22nd on Comedy Central. Let's all watch it. Um, and, and then vote. And then vote. And then vote. And then vote. Yes. November. It's coming. It's right around the corner. Um, up next, uh, Stephanie's going to be talking about the book Baby Feminist. we got to get into early. Yeah. Okay, it's Throwback Thursday, so here's a photo for you. It is of two future feminists, my brother and me. Oh, seasonal photo. There it is. I know this is going to be shocking, but everybody we look up to was a baby at one time. Here to look about, here to talk about that some more is Libby Babbitt-Klein, producer, creative director, and author of this adorable book I have here. 
baby feminist. Libby, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so, so much for having me. What was the inspiration for this book? How did you get the idea? Well, I, it was, my daughter was born and I, and then shortly after Trump was elected president and I was devastated and I just, I, I couldn't understand what was happening to our country. And I went to the women's march and it was this moment that I just felt such joy and hope kind of for the first time. And I saw so many kids and I felt like I wanted something that could speak to the next generation and my values and that our kids would love. And I saw that my daughter loved books with flaps and I loved feminism. And then we got Baby Feminist, a book with flaps and babies and feminists. It's so great. Here, I want to show the viewers really quick. So the first one, which I think is my favorite, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, obviously. And then you flap up and she's I'm trying to show it. Is it not really working? There we go. She's a baby. It's so cute. She has a gavel. Okay, so besides RBJ, who else? Um, RBG. The, RBG. <laughs> the Obamas are in it. Michelle and Barack, because Michelle has done such incredible work for women and girls around the world, and so has Barack. And he has really talked about what it means to be a feminist and a dad and a man. Um, Yoko Ono, Billie Jean King, Malala Yousafzai, who am I missing? Gloria Steinem and Dorothy Pittman Hughes. How did you um, choose the people to go into the book? I mean, there's obviously so uh, many great examples. You know, it was, choosing who would be in this book was absolutely the hardest part. We, there's so many incredible feminists, but we felt like we really wanted a team of people. We wanted people that looked differently from each other. We wanted a people that had done really different types of things and whose accomplishments kind of babies could relate to. And I mean that in that, like, we have Billie Jean King. And then as a baby, you see her playing with this little baby tennis ball. And we wanted something. And then the Obamas, you know, you see them in front of the White House, but then you also see them, like, playing with blocks as babies and something that the smallest kids could understand. These are people that look different from each other and that whose accomplishments are a whole different range. And we put that all together and we wanted current people. We spent months researching, and this is what we came up with. Yeah, you have all different type, all the different ages of people, all different races, yeah. all different different ages they lived in. So, when was the first time you remember thinking to yourself, "I'm a feminist" or learning about feminism? <sighs> I guess probably um, it was probably around when I was like 12 or 13, kind of just when I was beginning to feel like, "Oh, wait, it's actually really different to be a boy and a girl." in this world that we live in. I think before that, you know, and there's a lot of research too that girls' confidence kind of like, you know, plummets between like nine and 13. And um, so somewhere in that, I felt like, wait a minute, my experience is a little bit different than the boys around me. Yeah, for sure. So what, you've mentioned that you have a daughter and you wanna, you know, teach her through this book. What are you hoping people get through reading this book to their kids? So this is a book for babies. It's much younger than 13 or, you know, my current age. Um, <laughs> and I think for really young kids, feminism is so much about giving them um, role models. So, so many books for kids of this age don't have any female characters at all. So the first thing is like, here are women and here are female characters and real people that we respect that, again, look really different from each other, that are, come from all different backgrounds. So I hope one thing that families and kids take is look at these types of people that my family respects and honors, you know, and I think we talk a lot about there are the names and the airwaves like Trump and Kavanaugh and our kids are going to hear those, but we can read them books and teach them that there are other names like Yoko and Malala that we honor and that we care about. And then I think the word feminism itself, that we can teach our kids this is a word that we care about and that we think is valuable for them to know and that is meaningful for us. And as they get older, we can revisit the word, we can revisit the people, but it's like we're planting it deep. Yeah, it's, just, it's such a small thing, but just children learn through repetitiveness. I mean, there's books that I remember very clearly from when I was a toddler. Right. Just like implanting that into their minds so they know and they can explore that as yeah. they get older. And that they'll come back to it and think like, I don't know what this person is, but I know that my family values them and thinks yeah. it's important, this person, and I will revisit them and learn. So what has the reception been to the book? Is there going to be a baby feminist too? Yes, yes. Oh, the reception has been, we are so thrilled. We've gotten really wonderful reviews. Um, Today, we found out that we are a number four indie-bound bestseller, so the... Oh, wow, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. It feels like it is such a poignant moment for the book to be coming out, um, and that it is really speaking to families that want to tell, have a different story 
that they're sharing. And just the fact that there's so many families that want to impress this on both their daughters, but also their sons. Absolutely. It's definitely encouraging. Sometimes yeah. when the world is not super encouraging oh. these And days. I'm so glad you said son. Jess, the illustrator, it was such a close collaboration between the two of us. And she has a son. I have a daughter. We absolutely made it for both of them. Yeah. Was, I mean, this is definitely a book for boys as well. Yeah. Libby, thank you so much for joining me. And we want to see all of you baby feminists on Twitter. Send us your throwback feminist pictures using the hashtag AMCDM. Or if you know a baby feminist, a current baby, let us know. Show us their picture too. Baby Feminist is available now and suitable for all ages and genders, everything. Up next, Saeed and I are responding to more of your tweets. Okay, if you could come up with a baby feminist illustration, who would you who would you pick? I feel like I would do Michelle Obama, but she's already in the book. That's really good. Uh, That's really good. I would do Solange. I just came up with that. Ooh, Solange, Beyonce, line. Janelle Monet. Janelle Monet. Um, I would. You know, actually, what I think about sometimes is there's so many firsts in the government in Congress mm. that we don't aren't household names. Like the first women's senator is not really a household name. Mm. Like, even like the first black senator mm -hmm. really isn't a household name. So, I don't know, maybe someone like that who like we I haven't like heard as much about. Um, you know, I feel like I could, if I thought about it, I could name mm -hmm. some of those people, but you know, it's not like, you know, a huge thing that's like everyone knows their name. I love that. You know, like I, I'm a I'm a writer now. I've certainly worked as an editor. I didn't know an editor's name. I didn't know someone who worked as a black editor until I was probably in college and started to learn that Toni Morrison had worked as a book editor before she was, you know, the published author we knew who were as. And it's like those images of seeing a baby and then seeing someone in Supreme Court, you know, it's like each of those visions is like a pathway where you go, oh, that's possible, you know? So that's cool, I like that. Like more more images of these like heroes. And the way that these things get, people learn about these things is mm -hmm. having exposure, like mm -hmm. in this book. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, for example, I live right off of Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard. Okay. And I realized one day, like six months ago, I don't know who that is. Mm -hmm. So I Googled it mm -hmm. and I learned all about Adam Clayton Powell. So, oh. but I never would have known about him mm -hmm. if the street hadn't been named after him and there hadn't been a huge statue. I was about to say, you go check out that yeah, huge statue, statue in Harlem. But, yeah. you know, so cool. obviously there's statues of all sorts of people around the world, but, you know, making people who may not be as recognized, put out there, and then people learn, and then they are recognized, and then everything's great. It's great. Well, we asked if you were embracing the dramatic change in the weather. I am not. <laughs> but our producer, Mary, said, hi, guys. Well, I got puked on twice last night by a six, six-year-old, so safe to say I'm falling apart. Oh, yeah, Mary. Mary we, I w actually wasn't sure why. I heard, like, rumblings that Bubba was sick, but that sounds awful. Twice, dang. Ugh. Oof. Puked on? Oh. Like, even having to hear it. Well, you know, I'm sure Bubba feels terrible, too. Sorry. What? <laughs> We're just like oh, yeah. Sorry, poor Bubba. guy. <laughs> We feel bad for you, too. Shout out to you. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Um, we also discussed, discussed, of course, Sears filing bankruptcy and its history. Christine Carter, this is what you had to say. Thanks to AM to DM for highlighting Lewis Hyman's threat on Sears and Dream Crow history. Fascinating stuff. Yes. It's so, I mean, definitely when we, you know, I think when we think of Jim Crow, I think he's absolutely right. We tend to think of people being prevented from voting. Um, and I think, you know, of course, like water fountains and uh, restaurants, right? Like not being able to schools. sit at the counter, but schools, yeah. But I was like looking into the experience of shopping and, and, and being able to buy something, like that's a whole nother window now. I just, I mean, it just completely blows my mind yeah. that there are people who had so much hate in their heart that they were picketing Sears because they were letting people of color buy their I mean it's just yeah. it's just completely it like, it like doesn't away. surprise me that they were willing to start bonfires to prevent this but it does just go gosh it goes so much deeper than we'll ever fully understand and shout out to Twitter for giving academics a way for you know normal people like us who aren't in school to learn all of this stuff. Twitter historians. I like to learn, know so them. it's all good. Well, thank you to our guests, Libby Babbitt-Klein, Adam Pally, Stephanie March, Rachel Krishna, Molly Hensley-Clancy, Nidhi Prakash, Lewis Hyman, and Kira Lerner. Isaac is back tomorrow, and he's going to be so mad about Adam Pally's perfect leather jacket. <laughs> <laughs> I know, now he has a new standard wow. to, go, to live up Oof, to. The bar has the been set. The bar raised. has been set, Isaac. Oof, anyway. Get ready. Ha, 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 ha.